Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The single biggest thing that America has right now going against it is that we have four or five companies Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, that sucks up the enormity and the overwhelming majority of all talented technical human capital. <laughs> because if you are a smart young kid, you know, a guy or girl graduating from a college and you know how to code or you know how to, you know how to do something unique, how do you turn around to your family and say, I'm gonna go and work at this startup for 80 grand a year or this nonprofit or something else? versus going and getting paid a million dollars a year at, at one of these big companies. It's really impossible, right? I mean, I, I don't know your situation, but when I graduated, that was the biggest sort of Damocles over my neck was the student debt that I had. And so, but when they go there, what products are they working on? This is unfettered free agentism. Imagine that you had a professional sports league where there was no salary cap. What would you do? You would go and hire and you would sign every single great player, stick them on the bench you'd be guaranteed to win a championship. You'd be a monopolistic championship winner year in, year out. You're saying that they get paid to do nothing? <laughs> because when you say the bench, that's what I thought of. Yeah. No, no, no. That's, that's, that, that, is, that is the exact explicit strategy. Zach, we are back. This week, it's going to be Chamath Palapatia, who's a rock star, uh, investor, visionary, entrepreneur. But before that, we're going to talk about maybe the greatest thing I've ever been associated with, uh, which is that we helped get stimulus checks into this relief bill. Uh, and as we're having this conversation, text is still getting finalized. It looks like it's going to be uh, six to seven hundred dollars for every adult and child, uh, but that adds up to something like a hundred fifty billion dollars that are, are gonna that's gonna go out in the form of checks, uh, right as people need it the most. And thank you to everyone who helped make that happen. I, I'd love to uh, walk through some of of how it happened uh, yes. with you for our audience. It's so this is let let's be clear on this. We both agree six hundred to seven hundred dollars per person is not enough. Like we're, we're bigger, we want more than that. However, it is way better than zero. Um, so walk us through, I'm beaming right now because I've been, particularly the past, we've been working on this for a couple of months, but the particularly the past couple of weeks, 
we really started to kick butt. Um, and the national media is never going to give you the a lot of stuff behind the scenes anyway, but they're not going to be like, Andrew Yang saved the day. But I actually believe you have saved the day, and, this, and Humanity Forward actually has saved the day in, in, a, in a healthy way. So walk us through what has happened from your end um, and, and, and then where we, how we got to where we are right now. So if you remember in the run-up to the election, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Mnuchin and, and to a less extent McConnell just couldn't come to a deal. Uh, and there was a moment when uh, there was a $1.8 trillion offer that had some problems, but it was still like, a, a, to me, like the best offer I'd seen um, on the table. Uh, and I went out, I went public and said, hey, we should probably think about taking that deal because that, that's like uh, the best it's going to get. And Mitch McConnell hates it. And uh, right now they have political interest in trying to get something done. Um, so that deal did not happen. And after the election, uh, Humanity Forward pivoted very, very hard to lobbying for cash relief. Uh, right. we, we become a cash relief uh, organization that advocacy machine if you will yeah advocacy and you know what it reminds me of and you and i joke about this act there was a headline in the onion 10 years ago which was the american people hire a lobbyist to represent their interests on capitol hill and there's like a picture of a lobbyist <laughs> who gets paid lots of money and that headline stuck with me for 10 years because i thought that's a pretty good idea like maybe we should hire a lobbyist just to hang out and be like hey you know what would help the people Stimulus checks. For the record, I think The Onion has some of the most insightful, hilarious headlines. Like sometimes, like there's a reason they had a jester back in the day. Sometimes satire is the only way to like cut to the core of the truth. So kudos to The Onion. Yeah. So we had this um, pivot to talking to members of Congress. And I've had uh, over 65 Zooms with different House members, senators uh, over the last number of weeks. And I have to say, anytime one of those meetings hits my schedule, I got so pumped because I thought to myself that there's at least some chance that this conversation will lead to unlocking tens, hundreds of billions of dollars for the American people. Yeah. Uh, so we've been working on it. And then uh, about two weeks ago, still no deal, a group of bipartisan senators stepped forward and said, hey, here's a $900 billion compromise bill um, that ended up getting all sorts of momentum because there were some Republicans on it, some Democrats on it, and it looked like it could pass the Senate, which has been the bottleneck this whole time. And that did not include stimulus checks. Uh, the, the $900 billion was unemployment insurance. Love it. Um, coronavirus uh, costs and, and uh, resources. Uh, love it. Obviously, like some for vaccine uh, distribution. Um, the disputed elements ended up being aid to city and states, which I completely support. Uh, and this liability shield. So this bipartisan gang of senators could not agree on those two elements. And so they cut the $900 billion package by $160 billion or so with the city and state government aid um, in a separate bill. Now, simultaneously, we were having conversations with members of Congress, uh, letting them know, look, all your people love cash relief. Uh, economists love it. 74% of Americans are foreign, including a majority of both parties. Uh, and we got enough folks excited where there was a bipartisan bill led by uh, representatives Lisa Blunt Rochester of Delaware, who's a Democrat, and David McKinley of West Virginia, who's a Republican. So this bipartisan cash relief bill um, that percolated in the House uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that was a result of 
you know, those 65 plus conversations over a period of weeks um, where we've been pinging various members. So then at the last mile, when they couldn't agree on this city and state government aid, um, then they ended up swapping in the stimulus checks of $600 or so for every adult and child, uh, which costs, uh, you know, about that much money, like let's call it $160 billion. Uh, so when I got the call saying that stimulus checks are in, uh, because of us, like I I jumped for joy. I ran around, uh, and like grabbed Evelyn and was like, I think this is like the greatest thing I've ever done because you'd think about the tens of millions of Americans who are struggling right now, getting $600 a person. Like, let's say that you have, you know, two folks in your household, um, that would qualify could be like a single mom and a child. I mean, $1,200 in January is going to be a game changer. Couldn't agree more that, like, in my mind, we should be doing something much more dramatic, ongoing for everyone. Uh, But realistically, this bill, when it first hit the the, uh, Senate floor, didn't have any stimulus checks in it. You know, like, uh, and so the fact that it went from not having stimulus checks to stimulus checks is a major, major win. And thank you to the team at Humanity Forward. Thank you to everyone who's donated uh, to our efforts because... This return, we did the math, it's something like a million X return on uh, what we've uh, spent on direct lobbying. And we've spent much more on a lot of other things. We've given $10 million away to folks or so. Um, but we haven't spent that much money on lobbying. It's been a lot of my time. Um, you know, and, and my time costs uh, nothing in our calculation. So <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, and, uh, and, but really it's, it's everyone who helped elevate this movement to a point where members of Congress and senators are happy to take a meeting with me. You know, like, like that, that's actually in, in many ways the accomplishment of the last right. couple of years where we elevated our movement to a point where folks will meet with me because they'll know, look, Yang's got a lot of fans. He's got, you know, a million person mailing list, like social media following in a million. So thank you. We freaking did it. We helped get real relief to the American people. And again, uh, the highest point of my career thus far. It makes me so proud. I'm so excited to be part of it. And I think... So a couple of things. One, just for just make sure everybody knows, we think it's fundamentally fundamentally ridiculous that it took this long and this much work to make this happen. It seems like a no-brainer to help your people in the pandemic. If you're a Canadian, you've received tons of money um, for so the economy doesn't crash, so your society doesn't crumble. Um, so we're we're behind the curve as a nation, and it's it's really frustrating. But I will say this: when we ran, Andrew, we were frustrated when we met the leadership. Um, and the people in charge um, in some ways because we didn't think they were in touch with a lot of the people we were talking to, you know? Um, and our conclusion and my conclusion in particular was that the cavalry wasn't, wasn't coming to save us. Uh, there was no cavalry and we were it. And this effort and frankly, quick success, like we haven't been doing this that long. Um, for us to have as much influence as we did on getting this through shows to me that we have to be the cavalry. Doing something um, was uh, one, better than nothing, but two, so, so powerful because no one's doing anything. Like we were going to senators and congressmen and women and saying, hey, your constituents are hurting. They need cash. Everybody supports it. And what was their reaction, Andrew? I didn't even know that. That makes sense to me. Thank you for telling me that. I'll fight well, for what, that. There's what no what, political they, what they didn't see was the, the, the numbers. Like, all, all of them expressed like, wow, 74% approval rating like that. That's as high as it gets. 
you know, and, and there's no reason they would have known that necessarily yeah. um, without us providing it. It's been a real education. Um, so there are two things, I mean, put very simply, like we're in a deep, dark hole. Our government should be helping to dig us out. Um, I think it is ridiculous that uh, people are hemming and hawing about uh, the cost of water when the house is on fire. It's like, just get the hoses out and, and start going to work. Um, uh, and so it should be in the trillions of dollars. But there, there are two things we can influence in my mind. Number one is what's the size of the overall relief? Uh, the higher, the better, in my view. It, it, like uh, multiple trillions, yes, we should do that. Especially if more uh, the goes second to people, thing is the comp- right? Yeah, the second thing is the composition yeah, of the aid. It's like yeah. if you have a higher proportion go directly to people and families, that's a win. Uh, if you have uh, a lower proportion go to megacorps that are just going to like stick it on their balance sheet and, and chill with it and probably, you know, frankly, furlough people anyway, like Walt Disney did, like uh, that, that's a loss. So, uh, so, so those are the two things I'm trying to influence is like more is better, more to people is better. Uh, and uh, on this one, there was even a chance I w- we were told that like, you know, there might have been um, less on the table like that. Like there's no guarantee. So when they had this disputed hundred sixty billion or so um, in city and state aid, there, there was no guarantee that was going to get replaced. Like because uh, what they did is they separated the legislation into the part that everyone could agree on and they separated that part. So the fact that stimulus checks got in there, like grew that relief package by. 160 billion or so uh and it went directly to people so those are the the goals we're chasing Uh, and if anyone listening to this thinks like wow i like you know you want to be a part of this please do uh follow humanity forward become a recurring donator to humanity forward think of it as like the best investment you'd ever make um because this stuff works like you know i I was joking but it's like lobbying fucking works no wonder companies do it it works it works yeah like you know we we we, like uh it's got in there and (laughs) it worked i'm laughing uh, (laughs) yeah it like blew my mind completely dude we spent Uh, not what we spent like nine million dollars giving money to people and families and that was awesome right but we spent one hundred twenty thousand, let's say giving it to some lobbying firms that we like and trusted and to go fight for people. And now we're getting billions to go to people. Yeah. You know, it, it does make one think about the ratio. Uh, <laughs> and, and to be clear, this is like a magical moment. We were in the right place at the right time. We had some great legislators like Lisa Blunt Rochester yes, and yes. David McKinley. And Bernie, Bernie came Sanders. out and supported it, right? Yeah, like like a, a bunch of other folks. Um, so a lot of things had to converge at the same time. But I can genuinely say uh, I believe that we were integral to this happening uh you know like if if we have not been working it then there um was a real chance that this does not happen and i couldn't be happier and prouder it's like that this it is wild it's like that this is the pinnacle of uh impact on human life that uh, that i've uh i can actually point to um you know topping this is going to be uh difficult but we should definitely keep trying because you know like the crisis is going to rage on um there are going to be more relief bills coming out of congress in the new year for sure because the city and state government piece is still there uh democrats are going to fight for it rightfully by the way in my view um so there are going to be more relief packages and we have to keep on trying to improve them yeah you called me yesterday and you said zach this is the greatest thing i've ever done and not from a like I did this because a lot of people did this, but more on like a, as a, you know, you look at your career and you take reflecting yourself and what impact you had in the world and said, look, we can, 
we could hang it up right now and feel proud about the level of dent we've put in um into other positive dent we've put in other people's lives you know and we're not going to hang part of it too zach it is that, is that now you had two relief packages and two stimulus checks. And like now, now everyone's going to be like, hey, can't be a relief package without stimulus checks. I mean, right. that, that, like, like that also is a win. This really does set, set like a very, very firm uh, precedent. Um, and, and the stimulus checks are the most popular things we're doing. One of our early digital guys, Andrew Frawley in the campaign said, um, he was with us from day one. Um, and he was saying that, um, is asking if we had survivorship bias from the campaign in the sense that when you survive a car crash, something crazy and like with no odds to, to live through it, um, you believe you're invincible. And we keep having these massive successes that are like completely improbable. Um, and there's this one hand that's like, it's because we're invincible or because we can do anything. And that, that's not true. I th- but uh, I mean, it feels somewhat like like everything we're touching is is having success. And it's because I think we've tapped into a movement you know you are powered this movement is powered this podcast is powered by amazing people who all see what's happening and you are the vessel for them and frankly in my opinion and and i believe it's a fact fiercely loyal to them um like you will you'll make tough decisions but you are fighting for them i know that because i live it because i'm like we should do this you're like people don't want that we gotta do that you know i see that a lot with you um but i I, it's just fun to watch kind of the outrageous um wins we've been able to have even though in, in frankly in these in these dark times you know so that does excite me and hopefully excite you too andrew this is still a very early stage for this movement that we're building <laughs> it's it's funny because i read for president um and you know we had a measure of success uh and there was part of me that was like well uh, you know we have to transfer the energy very quickly into like an ongoing uh, organization and movement um, in the form of humanity forward. Um, uh, and um, I did not expect us to have this kind of impact this quickly, really. Um, so that that's a thrill. Of course, I, you know, we're in the midst of an historic catastrophe uh, and our government should be doing much, much more. So I, I think we're plugging into, uh, as you said, just what people see is it's the right thing. You know, like the cases we're making, and that's one of the things that really has surprised me about the institutional nature of it all is, is that like when, when I said, hey, Nancy Pelosi should probably take that deal uh, or a version of it. Uh, and then people like attacked me for it. And so it was like, who, who are you to like, you know, question this person's uh, judgment? I was really, really shocked that there were so few people that raised their hand and were like, hey, people need help. Winter's coming. Like, this is a lot of money. Like, let, let's do this thing. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it was crickets for the most part. I mean, it, it was it was very odd, uh, and and the fact that people were, uh, you know, uh, attacking me for it, I was like, use your judgment. Sometimes offers get worse, not better. Like the amount of political leverage you have right now is as high as it's ever going to be. Like, why would you think that it's going to go up from one point eight trillion, not down? <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, it's like like, you know, and uh, and so. Like, like that, there's this real institutionalization. This is why our movement has so much power, Zach, is that there are a number of people who actually see it and then evaluate it and be like, okay, you know, that makes sense to me. Um, and we have institutions that are putting forward a lot of things that only make sense if you're embedded in like whatever weird landscape it is. Like, like stimulus checks for people make common sense to everyone in the country. You know, three quarters of Americans are for it. The only place where it makes less sense is as soon as you get to Capitol Hill. <laughs> you know, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, 
you know, like uh, we, we, we should really be like looking at other things, uh, you know, or the media narratives. It's like you, you can see something happening um, and, and only in the media would that make sense. like like in many ways like we're like the layer of people um who are uh like calling out stuff that we can all see and fight for um and and my campaign was about you know people versus the machines and people thought of that as like robots ai which kind of was technology though i don't hate that stuff i mean I'm, i'm kind of into it um, but, but it's really, a, it's another set of machines, really. It's like this institutional machinery, um, where shit that makes no sense makes sense <laughs> and, and, and vice versa. What I really hope is like, look, I think there's a lot of people that we love the savior complex where we you put your hope in Trump, you put your hope in Bernie, you put your hope in Biden, you put your hope in Andrew Yang, right? The person. And I understand that. I felt that in some ways. I feel that about Josh Allen and the Buffalo Pills um, or things like that. But the reality is what really saves you is um, and will save us is is more than Andrew. It's it's the rationality and common sense we're trying. It's the ideas and logic behind what will actually help us. Um, and you're not going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect. Right. Like that, you'll never be everything to everybody. But you can rationally try to solve a lot of these problems that are messy and complicated and put a, some, a, a sane human being in charge of a lot of these things. Like, that's what I hope we can convey. Like, love or hate you, me, the movement. We The intentionality and logic behind the solutions we're presenting should help a lot of people um, and cut through the noise because there's such a lack of that in politics. You agree with that? Oh, well, I certainly agree that the with the fact that, you know, hanging everyone's hopes on like singular um leaders is not optimal for a movement. Uh, you know, uh I um and the the movement will coalesce around new leaders in different uh ways. Like Trumpism's going to outlive Trump, you know, like no no matter what. Um and, and that there's a massive appetite for uh the principles we stand for. Um, that is manifesting in different ways. I agree with those things. Um, certainly also agree with my own fallibility and, uh, and definitely your fallibility. <laughs> yeah, <for sure. laughs> I feel like you're the bar here. Like, I'm just trying to keep up, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> kidding, kidding. Um, I mean, you know, it's like, but we're, we're, uh, yeah, we're only human. Too. And like, it, it, it's yeah. like, I will say, I don't feel that much, um, you know, artifice. I mean, I feel like most people know what you and I are about. Um, and you know, yeah. when we screw up, they'll be like, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that makes bad. sense. Um, We're trying. But, but the cash yeah. relief portion, really, everyone who has touched this movement, everyone who supported my presidential campaign, you should really hold your head up high today because everything we did to try and mainstream these ideas uh, and make it so that we could influence policy paid off for tens of millions of Americans for real uh, this winter. Um, I, I could not be prouder. I could not be happier. I hope you're proud and happy too. And I hope this reinforces the importance of what we've done um, and we continue to do. Like I, I actually feel more energized and invigorated and frankly able to influence real life things than I did certainly um, the day we suspended my presidential campaign. Uh, and that's a, a wonderful feeling because you know you run for president, you don't win. Uh, like what next? And I, I'm a hundred percent certain that we have grown in influence and reach and impact leaps and bounds since then. 
I am so freaking proud of that. So thank you, Yang Gang. Thank you, Zach. Thank you to the team at Humanity Forward. Um, so proud of you all. Uh, you know, we just got to keep going. Uh, but this is this is something we should relish and celebrate. Amen. With that, let's go to our guests, man. I don't think it get better than that. What an episode. What a what a moment for us. We got a lot of work to do. But I'm a big believer in celebrating the wins, you know. And this was looks like a win, you know. <laughs> Such a win. High point of my professional life. So coming up next, uh, fascinating conversation with world-class investor, visionary, futurist, Chamath Palapatia. He's become famous more recently because he was on CNBC. And then folks were asking him what to do about uh, these companies and industries. And he was like, who cares about the companies and industries? We have like systems for that. You know, they have to go through like a recap or a reorg or bankruptcy. It's fine. Just take care of the people. You know, just like send the money to the folks who work at those companies. And then like, you know, like our corporate systems have processes. And then people are like, but what about the investors? And he's like, who cares? Like, <laughs> you know, like, we're like, we'll, we'll be fine. It's like, why are you trying to recap these companies and like preserve the, the investors instead of the people that work at them? So that CNBC clip went, went viral um, and, uh, you know, got him a lot of um praise rightfully so because it, it really like that that was a dose of common sense and the fact that he said it on cnbc everyone was so like shocked and appalled <laughs> you know, it was, uh, um, so coming up next my convo with chamath palapatia This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. It is my pleasure to welcome the Yang Speaks. I've been looking forward to this conversation for months, months. Chamath Palapatia. Chamath, how are you? Andrew, what's going on, man? Now, how do how do we introduce this man? It's like one of the most uh, innovative investors in the universe. Uh, but more than that, he's like an iconoclast, a speaker of truth, someone who goes and like shakes the trees. I you first hit, 
I feel like at least my consciousness and the consciousness of a lot of folks, and I know this was an, it was kind of fraught, is when you expressed your reservations about um, everything that went down with uh, Facebook, and you were like, "Man, I'm not sure if we <laughs> if we were like the pure good we we kind of hoped to be." Um, but you've done so much since then. Yeah, it was um, that was 2016, and that was the first time I think people outside of tech knew who I was. People inside of tech have known me for a while, but um, and then. And then I guess it was just this February or March during the middle of the or the beginning of the pandemic where there was another soundbite that kind of got broadly distributed. And here I am was talking to you. I made it. You made it. So was the soundbite at the beginning of the the uh, shutdown when you were like, hey, like who cares about um, the corporate uh, structure or the cap table of like the airlines or other companies? Why don't I just like bail out the people? We have systems to handle what goes on with the company's balance sheet. Uh, is that the soundbite you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. I was just, I was completely shocked that, you know, you would reward these, you know, basically idiotic CEOs and boards with hundreds of billions of dollars where an average everyday normal people were completely getting turned upside down. It made no sense. Yes, it did not make any sense. Uh, and thank you for speaking up. There were a lot of folks uh, that did pass that clip uh, to me and the Yang Gang, and everyone was like, Jamal speaking sense. Like, it is like, and you're one of the only people who would go on someplace like CNBC and talk sense. Well, I think I, I mean, at some point, you know, look, you're, if you're fed by the system, which those guys are, you have to basically trumpet conventional wisdom. And if you have a little, you know, if you can be emancipated, you can kind of tell the truth. Most people want to tell the truth. They, uh, but I just think they find it hard. And uh, uh, fortunately, for better or worse, I can tell the truth. Yeah, you are one of the biggest truth tellers um, in the investment world, for sure, in the tech world. Yeah, maybe in American life at this point. So when Evelyn and I saw your 2016 soundbite that went viral, my wife Evelyn was like, we have to find out more about him. And so then we looked up your bio and saw that, you know, you grew up the child of immigrants in, in Canada, not in affluent circumstances, kind of uh, went through a lot. Uh, and then you wound up... Um, finding your way first to finance and then to tech and then became part of the, like the, these various rocket ships. But there was like a humility to you and your background where it's like, despite all of your success, it felt like you hadn't let like the, the bullshit creep too much into your, <laughs> like it, it, in your mind. It was like, was a sense that both Evelyn and I got, you know, the, 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 the most important of the 10 crack commandments from the Drorius BIG is uh, never get high on your own supply. Um, and so I've tried to, I've tried to live that out. Like the reality is that um, I had a lot of skills that my parents gave me, um, but they also burdened me with some enormous insecurities and it kind of kept me checked. So I think in balance, um, you know, I never got too ahead of myself. I was kind of always trying to fight to figure out who I was. And that, that helped a lot, to be honest. Uh, I, I too grew up the son of immigrants, but you know, in my case, my dad was a physicist and engineer. So, uh, you know, it was a circumstance where my brother and I were kind of expected to get uh, good grades and the, the rest of it, uh, which was like a, a different backdrop. Um, the part of your background that I find like, you know, most fascinating that I want to dig into is so you had a lot of business success. And then you started a firm called Social Capital and Social Capital did stuff that was like a dream. Um, because you probably know from my presidential campaign, uh, I'm a capitalist. I think capitalism uh, is a very positive force in you know human life. Um, but I, I also think that there are these massive problems that capitalism isn't really directed at in earnest. 
Like if you have certain types of problems that a market-driven company can address, then venture capitalists will throw money at them. Uh, and the, the thing that fascinated me about you and social capital is you were trying to apply those resources to problems that were longer term, that were bigger, that were more social. Um, you know, I, I think you were one of the only investors that was really pursuing healthcare and education. And I used to joke that healthcare was where good ideas go to die. Because um, I worked in healthcare tech for four years. A lot of people don't know this about me, but in like the early 2000s, I worked at a, a company that tried to manage patient pre-surgical data uh, digitally. And it was such a freaking disaster. Like you go in there and these hospitals, you know, <laughs> like you're like, oh, my, my whiz bang product, it should work. Um, and, and so I feel like because of the regulatory ba uh, backdrop and a bunch of other things, like uh, some investors shied away from it. Um, so I love the fact that you actually tried to take uh, the mechanics of venture capital to the biggest human problems. When um, when I was when I left Facebook, I left because I was working on a project. I was a you know pretty technical person, a product and engineering person, and you know my team was responsible for building up Facebook to hundreds of millions and then billions of users. And um, uh, along the way, I was building a phone and to compete against Android and Apple. And when push come to shove, Mark and I just couldn't get aligned on you know me getting the amount of money that I wanted, and so I left. And um, I remember I was sort of on my way to take a vacation right before I started Social Capital, and I got on the phone with Peter Thiel, and I said, Peter, do you want to invest with me? And you know I had made Peter a lot of money at Facebook, and so he said, absolutely. How much are you going to invest in yourself? And what's crazy was up until that point, nobody had asked me that. And I said, I don't know, you know, like five, 10, 15, 20 million bucks. He goes, not enough. He's like, you need to be at least 30% of the money. And at the time it was like a $300 million fund or something. And so I did it. And the most important thing, Andrew, that I got from that was control. And I didn't realize how important control would become because when I chose to invest in some of these areas and push came to shove, there was a lot of investor capitulation because these folks are paid to basically get money back into their institutions and endowments and family offices that they work on behalf of. And this is when I really started to see the problem, which is that you have these enormous parts of society that are broken, where free markets and capitalism could fix them. Yep. But then the money comes from essentially rich people. And the problem is helping rich people stay rich is a, a pretty sad use of one's time, quite honestly, at the end of the day, and B, their appetite to take risk is de minimis because they like staying rich. And so you start to have all of these systemic market failures. And this is a lot of why people point to capitalism as perverted or not working, but it's because we have, we have moved away from what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to allow humans to make money by serving other humans, serving. And that's the whole point. And instead, we've refactored it into humans market manipulating and, you know, trading in esoteric instruments or, you know, gerrymandering the financial markets. Um, and all of that is just so utterly wasteful and sad. Um, and so, you know, social capital started initially with myself and a bunch of other folks' money. And then it migrated to largely just being my own so that I could take on the task in a small way of working in these market failures and trying to fix them without having return pressure. And then as it turns out, you end up making more money anyways. Um, and so I think we've struck on a formula. I think it's one that's 
kind of like pretty bold and hopeful. Um, and now the goal is to just do it at a scale that's hopefully one or two orders of magnitude bigger than the way in which we're doing it now. Well, I would love to dig into what you found works in that space. Um, but I also completely agree that there are a lot of financial actors who their job is just to generate a certain return on investment in a certain time period. Um, uh, and it, it's really influenced the way companies get built, where you show up. I, I have friends who took big slugs of VC money, and then the pressures on them to grow to the moon just skyrocketed. No, I mean, I've, I've said this before, but to your point, um, the Federal Reserve has sort of unfortunately been derelict in their duty. Um, they now work in this weird contorted way with the Treasury to print and introduce enormous amounts of money into the system. What that's done is financialized every part of our economy. And the problem is there are certain things that should never have been financialized. Flying a rocket should not be financialized, right? Finding a cure to cancer should not be financialized. Figuring out some great compelling leap in AI and machine learning should not be financialized, but we have. And so what that means are venture capitalists no longer are technologists, they are financial arbitragers. Private equity folks aren't business builders, they are expense managers. On and on down the line, you know, hedge fund folks aren't market strategists, they are market timers. You put all of that together and basically what happens is the economy whipsaws based on the whims of a few folks, a few rich folks who have the ability to you know, swing large amounts of money. And then again, these things that should be fixed through technology and innovation don't get fixed. Um, and so this is, this is sort of like the, the problem at hand. When, when you hear young people screaming from the mountaintops that capitalism is dead, I think what they're really saying is we have not seen, nor do we see enough of, examples of people that are solving these things in a way that they're proud of. And that's because too many people spend their time shuffling paper and just moving money around. To the young people who think that capitalism is not working, they're right based upon the last number of years and decades, because at this point, you have the winner-take-all economy that's kind of compounding on itself. Uh, and then there are a lot of folks who can make a lot of money not solving really the biggest problems that are growing more serious all the time, especially now with the coronavirus. Uh, and that's why I really can't wait to hear what you found. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. 
So I get that you say, look guys, we're gonna tackle real problems like healthcare and education that are thorny and human and difficult and might not have the, the same kind of trajectory as like the, um, the business or consumer facing tech that we're used to. And then I get that your investors are like, wait a minute, I didn't sign on for this stuff <laughs> necessarily. Like, you know, come on, uh, Jamad, you could like pick all these winners in like easier spaces. Uh, and then eventually you're like, hey guys, like th that's not really what I'm about. Um, so I'm curious how many other folks have the same mindset you do where it's like, look, I made a lot of money. I want to handle, uh, I want to tackle really important problems that, aren't as market friendly or time frame friendly um, as the stuff we customarily invest in? Um, there's a handful of folks. Um, I think that um, the, the, the sort of the, the grandfather of the space, the person who's really pioneered this path is a guy by the name of Vinod Kosla. Um, yeah. He's, a, he's an incredible entrepreneur and his firm Kosla Ventures, I think has done um, huge amounts to help the world in climate change and sustainability and agriculture. Um, he's an example. I think that there are other um, organizations actually now that are more institutional that focus on innovation. Lux Capital is an example based in New York. So there are some, um, but by and large, the incentives aren't to do that. The incentives are that you can get paid a lot of money to just basically, you know, put money into things that are obvious, mark up those companies, raise another fund and rinse and repeat because that pays you a great yearly compensation and at that point, you know, it's, you, you kind of have to ask yourself, why would I even bother trying to solve cancer? You know, like, this is crazy. It's just going to take too long, too much money. I may look stupid. I may get fired. And so, um, you know, people's own simplified incentives kick in um, and innovation stops. Yeah, it's much easier to try and jam yourself into Airbnb or uh, pre-IPO or something and then like turn around and be like, hey, I'm, like, I'm a genius investor. I had my annual meeting today. And what was so funny is I remember um, this is for my historic venture funds, you know, and look, I put a billion, three or four into the ground. And, you know, I told these guys, look, guys, you're going to make somewhere between five and six billion dollars. So congratulations. It's all great. And one of my ex partners texted me and he said, you know, these are the same guys who just got so agitated when you did a 3D you know, rocket printing company, which is now the second most valuable space business after uh, SpaceX that's private, you know, where we did this uh, satellite business that's also a multi-billion dollar business where we did uh, an AI chip company that's helping to, you know, do a lot of interesting things in science. Um, you were just not rewarded. And again, I go back to this Peter Thiel discussion. If Peter hadn't forced me or hadn't put peer pressure on me to put so much money in, I would have never made those investments. Now, the way that I think about it is, look, you know, I have a pretty like crazy track record and just kind of making money, which is kind of okay. Um, it's nothing that I'm particularly proud of, but I want to use it. And so the way I think about it is, you know, we have an organization where if you put money in, a ton of money comes out. We've done it for 10 years. It's, and it's like 35% a year return. So when you put, you know, five or $10 billion into a system like that, every year you're spitting out two or three or 4 billion of cash. But then I can take that, Andrew, and I can pump it into climate change and I can pump it into education. And, you know, because it's all of our own capital, all of my own capital, um, I don't have to answer to anybody except the employees and the founders and the market. Right. And so, you know, for example, there was a really incredible innovation that came out a few weeks ago from Google called um, AlphaFold. Now, what is that? They're using machines to guess the structure of proteins. 
And you may think, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, as it turns out, that is the basic building block to eradicate and solve an enormous swath of diseases. And so we have reduced an incredible problem of human health to one of compute power and to one of distribution. Now, that's where I could easily pour a billion dollars of capital, spend the next 10 years and say, guys, let's take, you know, crawl, walk, run an approach, and let's just have 20 or 30 really important diseases that we can, you know, basically put out of business. Um, and I don't have to answer to anybody except the scientists that work on the projects and then the market and the people suffering from those diseases will say, Chamath, faster, or, hey, it doesn't work, or, hey, it looks like it's working. Um, and so I find myself for the first time very happy, actually, <laughs> like, you know, reasonably content because we have this, you know, it's kind of like being a country, Andrew, I think, and like, you know, like you're Saudi Arabia and one day you wake up and it's like there's oil underneath your feet and all you have to do is just suck it out. And then when you sell it in the market, you have money, except in our case, we have a plan with what to do with the money. You know, we, we have these areas that we just think need to get fixed for humanity just to thrive. That's incredible that you've gotten that kind of uh, visibility into some of the thorniest problems and you feel like you can make headway in solving them. I spent a number of years running a nonprofit that was trying to help young entrepreneurs in different markets around the country, uh, primarily in the Midwest and the South. I would interact with billionaires um, and then I would say, hey, support my nonprofit or support this thing I'm doing. And uh, if they were into it, they would make a move. But even if you are a billionaire, you don't move in increments of like, you know, 25, 30 million. Like if, if they were wanted to be really supportive of my organization, I might get one or two million. Um, and then I would be, you know, frankly, I have to be like, well, that's freaking awesome because, you know, two million dollars is like nothing to sneeze at. Um, but but there was a sense I had that among these billionaires I knew, like they were looking at trying to solve particular problems and they didn't think they had the resources. And you're like, wow, I'm like a, with a billionaire and like they don't think they have it. Um, so I, I'm curious what your mindset has been when you look at some of like the biggest problems humanity is facing uh, and the scope of the problem relative to the resources that are being applied to solve that problem. I, I really haven't met a problem that is really one of capital. Um, and I think that I have more than enough resources to solve all the problems that we're trying to solve, except one critical one, which is human capital. And I think that's the, that's the most important thing to take away, which is that it's not that, for example, like let's just say that you and I said, hey, let's go and get every single home in America to be carbon neutral. Okay, that's a great goal, right? How would we do it? Well, I can yeah. tell you, I can tell you what the answer is. And the answer is actually not too complicated, which is every house has a roof. Every roof can support residential solar. All of that solar energy can get basically stored on site in an extremely safe and predictable battery. And then you can give the homeowner or the apartment dweller an app that allows you to know exactly how much energy those solar cells on the roof has um, has generated, and then you can use it to power the home or the apartment, and whatever's less you can put back into the grid. So how do you solve it? As it turns out, it's not one of capital because you can get hundreds of billions of dollars of project finance to do that because people spend hundreds of billions of dollars buying the bonds of utilities every single day in the marketplace. The really complicated part is, can you get 15 or 20 engineers to build the right app that allows you to basically understand how energy is managed and recirculated. 
Can you get the right, you know, battery scientists and chemists to build the right battery storage technology? Can you string those batteries together across a neighborhood? So what I've found, and I, I could be totally wrong, but what, what I found is that most of these solutions are ones of human capital and that it doesn't take tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. People find ways of spending that much money, but that's just a lot of um, poor planning. Now, if eventually, Andrew, you and I were to find a solution, what I would say is it probably would cost 50 million to figure out. Then you and I would say, let's go to a small town like Palo Alto or you know, someplace and say, let's deploy that there and figure it out. And then let's go to a city like Austin or Miami and say, hey guys, here's what we found. Let's go roll it out through all of Miami. And then we would go nationwide. And along the way, the capital markets are actually very liquid and would give you all that money non-dilutively. So it's not that I intend to never work with the capital markets. I just think that in that early phase, the, the single hardest thing to find is actually the people. Um, and at the end of the day, these solutions can be found for hundreds of millions of dollars. This is why I always sort of get trapped in, you know, people, people have approached me constantly and it's like, hey, what's your philanthropic strategy or charitable strategy? And I, and I say, to be honest with you, I think that all of these problems that I'm looking at will be solved with technology-oriented solutions, the ones that I am the most um, sympathetic to, climate change, um, sustainability, agriculture, um, health, education. Um, and so, you know, eventually, will I, you know, find a way to give all the money away? Sure. But right now, you know, I think it's important to recycle it back into for-profit businesses because this is how I solve the human capital problem. The single biggest thing that America has right now going against it is that we have four or five companies, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, that sucks up the enormity and the overwhelming majority of all talented technical human capital. <laughs> because if you are a smart young kid, you know, a guy or girl graduating from a college and you know how to code or you know how to, you know how to do something unique, how do you turn around to your family and say, I'm going to go and work at this startup for 80 grand a year or this nonprofit or something else versus going and getting paid a million dollars a year at at one of these big companies. It's really impossible, right? I mean, I, I don't know your situation, but when I graduated, that was the biggest sort of Damocles over my neck was the student debt that I had. And so, but when they go there, what products are they working on? This is unfettered free agentism. Imagine that you had a professional sports league where there was no salary cap. What would you do? You would go and hire and you would sign every single great player, stick them on the bench you'd be guaranteed to win a championship. You'd be a monopolistic championship winner year in, year out. You're saying that they get paid to do nothing? <laughs> because when you say the bench, that's what I thought of. Yeah, no, 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 that's, 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 that, is, that is the exact explicit strategy. Absolutely. So, so this is why I think, again, we have to find market-driven solutions. We have to find a way to use technology to build successful for-profit companies because we have to convince all these people that are frankly withering and dying on the vine at these companies that they should be working at these young dynamic businesses. You know, this is the forward bleeding edge. Like if you think about what happened in 1969, right? The Apollo project was the pinnacle of innovation in America. But what did you really have in that moment? What you had was an extremely diverse ecosystem where you had a public-private partnership. You had the government that was basically an enormous balance sheet plus a lot of regulatory 
freedom, and the ability to explore, which then saw the germination of hundreds of companies and an ecosystem trying to get America into space and then to the moon and then back. Now we have the exact opposite. We have the federal government that isn't exactly sure what its posture should be. They work with an incredibly dated set of laws from antitrust to otherwise, section 230 and otherwise. And then we have a handful of companies that are effectively monopolies that understand that their balance sheet is a tool, that their balance sheet is equivalent to most other governments in the world, except maybe the United States, right? If you, if you put the GDP of countries on a, a list and then put the market cap of these big companies together, these five companies are probably top 50 countries. Sure. Right. And so, and so, yeah, yeah you can green mail people. You can basically work on all kinds of nonsense, you know, nonsense and random stuff. And as a result, innovation slows down. Um, progress slows down. As a result, wage growth slows down. As a result, people's frustrations grow. And then they point to capitalism, except really, again, what it is, is a bunch of financialization on one side and green mail and hostage taking on the other that have basically trapped a whole cohort of young people in working on the things that really matter. Chamath, I, I spent a number of years trying to counteract this. I don't know how much you know about my work with Venture for America. So what, what uh, we did was we recruited enterprising young people, some of them technical, some of them not, to work at early stage growth companies in Detroit, New Orleans, Baltimore, Cleveland, um, Birmingham, uh, and another half dozen cities around the country that are not New York, San Francisco, um, with the thought process being exactly what you described, which is, look, right now, if you're a whiz kid out of a lot of places, um, banks and consulting firms and tech companies will wave money at you, and then you will go there and you will do something that's not super uh, socially productive. Uh, and so wouldn't you rather start a business in a place or help a business grow in a place that uh, could use the talent, could use the energy, could use the help? I spent uh, six and a half years running a nonprofit that did this and has done this for, at this point, um, hundreds, maybe thousands of young people. And I saw the market forces you're describing in action, where if you're a really bright kid out of pen and you go to a startup in New Orleans, and then you see your friends getting paid six figures, if it's a bank, maybe more, if it's you know, certain, certain tech firms and you look up, you're like, oh my gosh, like what's going on? Am, am I missing out? Cause I'm here in new Orleans working for, you know, a, a certain amount of money. It's a very difficult landscape. Um, you know, venture for America had a degree of, uh, of success, but also I realized the enormity of the problem. There was a tweet during the middle of the pandemic where some guy was like, um, he was an employee at Google and then had pretended to quit and got a job at Facebook and then was being paid by both. And because they're working it's like from home, of nobody like a knows. Valley episode. <laughs> it's, like out, it's like out of Silicon Valley or office space. And you think this is an absolute fucking joke. And meanwhile, you know, the earth is burning to the ground. You know, <laughs> you know, we can't we can't even figure out how to, like, uh, do anything except distribute burritos by cars to people. I mean, it's kind of crazy. I want to dig into the example you just used about, uh, for example, trying to make people's homes zero emission. And I was the judge at a, of a clean tech competition recently, and the winner was this very simple product that was essentially a film you put over windows that make them retain heat and energy better. Uh, and one of the wonderful things about this product was that you don't need to be that high skilled to install it on windows. I mean, it's essentially a window treatment. 
Um, so to me, the problem is that like what percentage of American homes right now have this, this, uh, enviro friendly window treatment, you know, virtually zero. Uh, and if you were to go to folks right now and say, Hey, would you like this window treatment? If it will pay for itself within 18 months, like including installation, most Americans would say, sure. Uh, but right now there, there's not like, um, uh, there's not a mechanism to drive widespread adoption, uh, like of that product. Uh, and that's like, to me, a very simple, straightforward example. Um, now the, the, the solar panels that could help make the, um, the houses zero emission, let's say it'd be like an order of magnitude more difficult than this window treatment <laughs> I'm describing. So the problem right now to me is that like there are market failures in the talent level, which I agree is uh, really, really hurting us uh, in a massive way. It's hurting us culturally, economically, like uh, in innovation. And then there are inefficiencies in the market where you can see opportunities where folks should be installing this window treatment or uh, or solar panels. And it could be that maybe the solar panels aren't ready for prime time and you need to innovate to try and get them to a point where you know they're, they're more cost effective. This window treatment is definitely cost effective now. You know, it's like, a, again, like the, the simplest thing in the world. Um, but... Uh, they, they're just a startup. They've got not that much money. Um, and so they're looking around for ways to try and uh, get folks excited about their product, uh, you know, like a, establish uh, some kind of brand and track record. And I feel like there are a host of companies that are like that, that window treatment company where they've got something, they've got something, they've got something real. Uh, it, it would make a positive impact. It doesn't get widespread adoption. They, they're not made of money. Uh, to make it happen. And the value gulf for someone isn't so vast that, uh, and I'll use myself as an example, like I judged this clean tech competition. I love that product. I was like, that should win. And then did I turn around and like get those, you know, with a window treatment done in my own home? Like, you know, like I have not yet and I apologize, <laughs> but, but that, but that's like the example is like, you know, I was like staring right at it. Um, and it would save me money eventually, but like it, it wasn't enough to impel me to act. Um, Again, this, this maybe says something negative about me, and I'm sorry, audience, <laughs> that, that, that I didn't do this. Um, so, so that to me is like uh, is an example of like kind of the the problems that we're we're facing. Where it, even if you have something that um, could help, right now our market is not properly uh, rewarding adoption, um, and it, it would reward adoption of some other things that probably aren't going to be as positive. Yeah, we are um, we are in this really important moment in time where um, folks will have to make some really important decision about what their priorities are. Um, look, I think that one of the things that you did, um, and this is going to be, uh, and I've and I've you know had a reasonably good track record of not necessarily being contrarian, but generally getting it right. So I'm just going to put something out there, which is that you know there was a lot of talk in the Democratic um, presidential nomination process about the progressive left. And there was this interesting thing, which is that you were this kind of like weird character that kind of just emerged, which was like smart and like normal and plain spoken. And like all these sort of like other smart, normal, plain spoken people were like, yeah, I like math. I like, you know, things that make sense. I like sentences when he <laughs> says something. Um, and, uh, and I think that, um, there is something that's happening, which is hard to appreciate, which is that 
you know, progressivism, I think, is a doomed experiment. It's the first initial reaction of an extremely frustrated class of people. But I think what it gets replaced with is pragmatism. And I think what's interesting is the most indelible thing about the 2020 election process will be that you probably created, um, you showed product market fit for pragmatism. And I think that Joe Biden took advantage of pragmatism and he monetized it. Um, and I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of because that, that happens a lot in technology products that wins. You know, some guy innovates and the other guy monetizes and kind of closes the deal. Um, but it is the winning strategy. And um, back to this sort of like film company, why I think this is important is that there are all kinds of technologies that right now um, are not managed pragmatically. Now, I don't know about this thing, but if this thing is wrapped in some dude with a hipster beard and hemp pants, he can go fuck himself because it's not going to work, right? He needs to be pragmatic. It's like, what the hell do these films cost? How do I get them to the house? How does somebody come and install them? How do you give me an app that shows me how much money I'm saving? How do I make sure I don't look like an idiot for doing it, especially if the film is ugly? If he can pragmatically figure it out and separate all the emotional, you know, hand-wringing around climate change, that company will win. And uh, I think that we are going to get faced with a whole suite of decisions like that over the next five or 10 years as consumers that we can make at the political level, at the product level, at the technology level. Do you want pragmatism? And in a world where you decide yes, we'll have a lot of solutions. And a world where you want to wrap yourself around a flag of you know, identity politics and all this other bullshit, then we're just going to stay where we are. Well, to me, the issue with that uh, the, the window treatment company, uh, you know, it, it's related to what's happened with solar and what happened with uh, electric cars and other things. I think at some point the government, the public sector has to say, you know what, we really want solar energy to grow, even though right now it's not cost competitive with uh, with fossil fuels. So we're going to help make it happen. Like, I feel like something like that has to happen with a window treatment where it's like, you know what, like we can't get customers to get that excited about this just yet because they're just kind of shrugging and like, you know, letting heat es escape through their windows. But we want to create jobs because there are over 10 million Americans who are out of jobs and we think it would be great for homes to have this window. Film. Like, so this is the, this is what compelled me to eventually run for president. I certainly appreciate your characterizing me as like the, um, uh, out of nowhere, plain spoken, <laughs> like sense talking figure that makes me very happy. And this is what I'm I'm trying to connect with you on or figure out where we diverge is like at some point I said, okay, of like the biggest, hairiest problems, you're going to need the public sector to get its shit together or we're fucked was like eventually where I landed. Uh, and then and then the public sector is not exactly like a paragon of like efficiency or rationality or the rest of it. Um, but I just did not see a way for us to solve some of the biggest, hairiest problems without the public sector saying, you know what? I think it might be a good idea to get this window treatment, guys. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you two examples where the public markets or sorry, the, the public sector is actually getting their shit together. So the, the first is in climate change. And the single biggest boon to climate change is the fact that we have all of these really complicated politics in America foreign policy related to the Middle East and to Russia. And the most important thing that I think um, is happening is the following dots are being connected. The faster that America basically puts the need to burn fossil fuels um, out of business, the faster that Saudi Arabia, 
um, all of the Middle East um, and all of Russia will have to monetize their oil. Because if the future price is zero, then you're going to pull all of the oil out of the earth today to try to get whatever you can for it, even if it's a dollar. A dollar today is worth better more than zero tomorrow. And in that, a couple of things happen. The Middle East actually has one incredible asset going for it in a world of climate change. That is sunlight. It has an enormous amount of sunlight. In fact, you know, you may not know this, uh, maybe you do, but you know, the, the country that is the single most advantaged country in a world of photovoltaics um, and in a world of solar is um, uh, Armenia. <laughs> I did like, not know that. It's like the sunniest place in Saudi the world. Arabia. Yeah, but, but the point is that um, all of that will allow us to basically completely refactor geopolitics. So, you know, the Middle East will be okay. There's going to be less fundamentalism. There's going to, because there's just going to be no money to fund it. So it doesn't matter who you are, but you'll be like, hey guys, uh, I want to raise my series B for ISIS. And people are like, no, you know, we, we did the seed round. It didn't kind of work. We did the series A, we hate it, we're done. Um, and then the, the countries that it really, really, you know, puts behind the eight ball is Russia because they don't necessarily have the mechanisms to move off of fossil fuels. So for example, like, you know, our foreign policy posture will actually drive climate adoption more than people realize. But in that, what I think will happen is like basically Russia gets put into a corner even more than they are now. The Middle East then becomes an element where imagine they have all of this sunlight. The biggest thing that we haven't yet figured out, Andrew, in technology, in climate technology, is how to actually take the sun and use it to heat water and create steam at above 1500 degrees centigrade. Now you may say, well, what the fuck? What are you talking about? That is the most basic building block of any single factory. Because the minute, and right now, the only way that we get steam to be super, super hot and to you know, use it to melt steel and make aluminum and stamp out you know, whatever crap we buy from China, it takes a furnace and it takes an enormous amount of fossil fuels. If all of a sudden you figure out how to use the sunlight, what America can do again with our foreign policy is we can fund an entire factory build out all throughout the Middle East. And you know who it hurts? China. Now think of the two countries we've been told for the in every administration who is literally an enormous pain in our ass. China and Russia and climate change basically nullifies both of them. And on top of that, you have this enormous demographic bubble in China where, you know, in the next 50 years, um, they're going to have half as many people because everybody's basically dying and the birth rate is negative. So, so we're, we're set up in a place where like the Biden administration can basically deal the death blow and from a foreign policy perspective, because we don't need to, you know, hack China or Russia. We don't need to invade folks. We don't need to arm, you know, countries against them. None of that needs to happen. All we need to do is become carbon neutral because the minute that we do that, then I think, you know, what you have is Russia in a really precarious position financially and the Middle East that probably becomes the next manufacturing mecca for the world, which then puts Chinese GDP superiority in massive risk. So these are all these sort of interconnected things that I try to think about a lot, but um, this is why I'm spending so much time on climate change, because not only will you create great products, will the air be more breathable? Will kids be able to study easier? You know, will the, the sea stop, you know, sea levels stop rising, but you fix all the geopolitical shit that we've been in for the last 20 years. One thing I love talking to folks like you about is what you see coming down the pike, because you're 
job is essentially to both tell and build the future. Um, so of the things that you're seeing that you're excited about, one, it sounds like you're very optimistic that we'll be able to uh, advance cures for various diseases. I mean, that, like that, that would obviously be uh, incredibly good news for millions of Americans and a lot of other folks. It sounds like you're optimistic about um, moving towards being zero emission or carbon neutral uh, uh, in the days to come. So like, what are you seeing that you're super pumped about? Um, I also want to call out something that you're doing. I saw that you're trying to train um, investment managers in a way that it sounds avowedly pro-social. You're just like, hey, let's like find a way to train folks uh, at scale um, that's outside of like the traditional bounds. You don't need to go get some expensive degree and the rest of it. You're going to, it sounded, it sounded to me like you're going to find people with like unconventional backgrounds. Um, so I, I, you know, want to congratulate you on that. Um, so what are you seeing that or doing that you're excited about right now that will help someone visualize what the future could be like in the next number of years? The way, the, the way that I would put it is I think that if I had to be somewhat cynical about my career trajectory, the first 25 years has been, you know, by all measures successful, but success has come by husbanding information, right? I had a knowledge edge and we didn't necessarily share that knowledge widely. You know, I knew things that other people didn't know. I think for the next 50 years of my career, what I would like to do is break down those barriers and share all the knowledge that I've accumulated. Like Google makes all the information available at your fingertips, but information and knowledge, as you know, Andrew, are two totally different things. Um, but I want to share my knowledge. And so I'll, I'll give you three areas that I think are going to get revolutionized and I would love to be a part of it. The pandemic has really shown to me that our education infrastructure is totally broken. I have kids. <laughs> so, so watching them uh, struggle with online school has been miserable, you know, and, and, uh, and we all talk about online schools um, and I'm like, online school, better than nothing, uh, but not great. <laughs> you know? And so I went looking for data points on how kids are learning. And the data points I found were that um, that online learning is 30 to 70 percent as effective as in-person school. So I just wanted to throw that that, um, that data point in there before you continue. Well, no. So to your point, like uh, I think what the pandemic did was behaviorally show that kids um, can adapt and actually at least learn something in a remote environment and that they can learn where, you know, they are essentially virtual. Okay. I think the reason why that's important is that a whole bunch of services have also cropped up um, that allow you to find the best grade five math teacher, the best grade six algebra teacher, the best grade seven history teacher, the, the best grade 11 drama teacher. And I think in the 21st century, especially in America, it stands to reason that we should be able to give these incredible teachers, we should pay them like athletes. They should get paid more like LeBron and Giannis, you know, and Steph Curry. These guys should be making 30, 40, 50 million bucks a year. And they should be teaching all American grade five, grade six, grade seven, grade years. And when you're in school, you should be consuming this video content with incredible local teachers that help supplement and reinforce what these best in class folks teach us. You know, that's just like a thing where it's like, let's make sure again, we even the starting lines, right? That we're not husbanding knowledge, that it's not the kid that's in fucking Larchmont that gets a better occasion than the kid in the Bronx. That's not fair, right? Because that kid in the Bronx could be the next Steve Jobs. 
And we're not going to get a chance to find out because that kid's teacher is just not as good as the kid's teachers in Rye and Larchmont and, um, you know, Greenwich, Connecticut. And so this is something technology can fix. We can even the starting line, not even the finish line, but even the starting line. That seemed to me, that seems to me like a really reasonable and humane and good thing to do. So that's something in education that I see coming down the pipe. Um, in financial technology and fintech, one of the most important things that we can do, one of the most important things that I can do is make the knowledge I know about how to make money widely consumable, train many other people in the lessons that I've learned so that they can make money for normal, ordinary folks. And this is a very simple way to um, close the inequality gap. Buffett has a saying, which is that the way you make money is not timing the market, it's time in the market. And so, you know, my emerging managers program, I had a thousand people apply. I'm going to teach thousands and thousands of people what I know. I'm not saying that what I know is special and will always be unique, but for right now, what I know is how to make billions and billions of dollars a year. And so let them make billions and billions of dollars for other people. That would be amazing. Um, and then a third example is that, you know, uh, I've been working with a team. These are folks that I partnered with out of Google in a startup that's been building um, a chip for human learning and machine learning. And again, this is important because I think we are bumping up against the laws of physics. And I think that we're almost at a position to bend these laws of physics in a way where we can create so much computing resources available. And if you combine that with some of these things that I spoke about earlier, like what Google is doing with protein simulations, um, we're gonna solve all human disease. Um, and you know, it's not gonna cost that much money, $5 billion, $10 billion, like not a big deal. You know, I can fund it, Zuck could fund it, Gates could fund it, who cares? And so one of us should do it. Um, and so I think those are three examples of areas that I'm pretty um, addicted to beyond climate change. I would say climate is my first one, to be completely honest with you, Andrew. It's, it's kind of become an obsessive. Sure. It drives everything else. I mean, heck, plus you live in California and literally like the countryside's ablaze. You have no idea. Like in September, um, the sky was orange and it looked like it was out of a, a movie where like aliens were invading. I've never felt more insecure um, since I moved to the United States. I mean, the, I, I had my, my next most moment of insecurity was when, you know, Trump won the election. I thought I was going to get kicked out and sent to some internment camp. I, I really did. Uh, and then the second most insecure moment I ever had was looking at the forest fires in California when I was here. No, I mean, I mean you were obviously focused on climate change well before the sky turned orange, but the sky turning orange, I'm sure, uh, made you feel like you were making the right choices. <laughs> you were like, thank goodness I'm working on this. Uh, there, there was like a piece of it too. I was trying to figure out what you could do to try and prevent the forest fires. And it turns out that we properly managed something like 2% of the nation's forest. Uh, the forest that was burning in California is a national forest. Like the state of California doesn't even really have jurisdiction over it. Um, and so I looked at the U.S. Forest Service's budget and the U.S. Forest Service's budget, probably shocking to no one here, uh, has not changed that much in the last number of years. Um, even as you can tell, the forest has been drying and turning into more of a tinderbox. Um, because, you know, I, I looked at what was going on in California and I thought this is tragic and terrible. And it would be incredibly destructive for any form of confidence. Trees are an incredible um, carbon sink, as you know. 
if you look across the world, the United States is probably the third or fourth best place to grow trees. Um, you know, the Amazon being the best and then Indonesia, Colombia, there's, there's a handful of places that are incredible. And within the United States, it's actually North Carolina, Mississippi, that corridor, which is the best if you just look at vegetation and whatnot. Um, so we got really interested, to your point, I got interested in this too. And I was like, what could we do in reforestation? And so we started a project where, you know, we're buying, I can't remember the exact number. So this is going to sound a little aloof, but 10,000 or 100,000 acres. And we have these drones that map the burnt down forest. Yeah. The drones have guns and yes. it, shoots, it shoots saplings into the ground. And so it's kind of like a whole Star Wars thing where like these drones just, you know, come up over the hill and then they run over all this land. And just start freaking planting trees from the sky. Like I've seen this stuff and it was, it's like the coolest thing in the world. So I'm going to run this by you, uh, Chamath, because I was, again, I was trying to figure out, okay, how can you help with this forest management? Um, the obvious thing to do would be to like hire uh, tens of thousands of park rangers to burn off, uh, you know, the, the brush and actually try and manage the forest in like a sensible way. Um, there is some politics around that, but at this point, I feel like it's obvious. But then I was imagining, just like you had the drones fly over and just freaking start like planting trees by the thousands and these acres of land. Like I was trying to imagine, okay, could you have a set of drones that are hovering over this forest uh, along with heat sensors? And then whenever like a fire started go going up, then the, the drones actually can like pick up on it and being like, hey guys, FYI, there's a brush fire in sector, you know, like H4. Andrew, it's a great fucking idea. This is what I mean. Like, look, there's a, there's a, and here, by the way, can I just say the other thing? The other thing is that we've bastardized entrepreneurship in America where people think that starting a company needs to mean you become a, you know, centi-billionaire, otherwise you failed. And that's just not true. Okay, you don't want to be, as dysfunctional as it takes to make that much money. <laughs> just let me just tell you, being up close and personal to it. What I will tell you is that there's enormous respect that you should have for yourself and even building a company where you can have eight, nine, 10 employees, all yes. of whom can have families and homes and you know, yes. you support your community and you send your kids to college and you have some savings. That's amazing totally. too. So, so you should go and somebody should go and start this business that does that you know, heat sensing with drones, sells that service back to local, state, and federal authorities, makes a couple million dollars a year in their company, has 15 or 20 people employed. Everybody can make a very good living wage. That is success. I, can, I could not agree more. You know, one of the things that breaks my heart right now is all of the small business owners are going bust um, because their business is drying up because of the pandemic. And if you have even a restaurant or bar or food truck, I mean, you're employing like four or five people or in some cases, restaurants would be dozens, um, hundreds of people. Uh, like that is success. I agree with you. I mean, I, I ran a small private company myself. I uh, had nowhere near the level of commercial success as, um, you know, you or some of the people you know. Uh, but I felt very, very um, proud. Andrew, let's be honest. More people look up to you than look up to those folks. And the reason, again, is because there's a humanity and an authenticity in just trying to do good by people. And look, you can get really cutthroat and all of a sudden make all the money, quote unquote. It's not a path to happiness, you know? And uh, I've learned the hard way because I've fallen for this trap many times. There's been a bunch of times at the fork in the road where I've said, okay, it's not enough. And it's like, what the fuck do you mean it's not enough? 
enough. It is enough. It's all enough. It's like now the real solution to your happiness is about being fulfilled and all of these other things that don't come from making money. And it comes from employing people and knowing that they have good lives. And, you know, I, I, I've started to explore, for example, a different program to try to um, instigate some change in uh, student debt. It's called income sharing agreements, right? Where you pay people to go to college or to a trade school and you get a share of their income above a certain threshold, right? Um, and then they pay you back and then they're never in debt. And, you know, you kind of, if it, if it works at the scale of a billion dollars, it, it does kind of really put student lending on its heels. Um, but what is that? That's an effort to sort of like say, yeah, could you make a ton more money doing something else possibly? But will this make, you know, millions of people's lives meaningfully better, even if you basically break even and then some? Yeah, that's better. Um, so I think it's good to have examples of folks like you basically reminding people that like it, this, this kind of like crazy obsession with wealth that we have in America is really not what it was ever, and it was not what it was all about. You know, Chamath, like there's a regular joke around um, my family and the Yang Gang um, that I would get described as a billionaire periodically. Uh, and, and we had a good laugh because my wife would be like, well, it's news to me because <laughs> we're just like living like a pretty normal life. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I think that your experience is really fascinating on this level too, because, you know, you reached a level of uh, business success that most people uh, can only only dream of. But I have friends who um, also like struggle with, uh, I mean, the heck, the most like the most glaring example from a recent history is like the tragic story of Tony Shea, who I'm sure you knew because, you know, they're like, our circles are not that big. Um, did you know Tony? Uh, I knew him sort of arms, arms length. I've met him three or four times, but I didn't really know him that well. Yeah, so Tony, obviously, I mean, world famous entrepreneur worth hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and had a void that, you know, is difficult to fill. And then when the coronavirus shut down your ability to socialize in various ways, then, you know, like tragedy followed thereafter. I mean, the, the, the human condition is inescapable. It's universal. It's everywhere. Uh, I certainly feel very fortunate that I went down a path where I was trying to do good stuff and help people. Um, and my wife is a rock star on this. So like I, I ran a private company, it, it gets bought for like a, a little bit of money, 2009. And then I go kind of wholesome, do-goodery, uh, nonprofit guy with the thought process being like, look, I made enough money so I can like work for essentially for free for like a period of, and, and the, I had timed it for myself. I said, I can work and not just not worry about money for five years. And at the end of that, like, hopefully I will have done something positive with this nonprofit. And then have it, then six and a half years later, I was like, okay, the problems I was trying to tackle are so much bigger than anything I could have imagined. Um, like the, the only th thing I can think of that would actually give me a real chance at solving the problem uh, was run for president, which was also, by the way, economically uh, highly impractical. <laughs> Um, but, but, but then thanks to like folks who actually started to, uh, support me and, and believe in me, like, you know, the campaign worked out at a particular level. Um, and now I literally, like I wake up and just trying to find ways to help people and like do positive things. Um, and, and it's really exciting. Um, and, and like, it goes back to what you were talking about before, where you have these five megacorps. It'll just freaking, you know, drop six and seven figures on, on young people and say like, you know, your highest use is hanging out. Uh, here in the mothership, um, <laughs> and the intellectual lobotomization of America. My my turn of phrase for it, Chamath, back when I was young, and this is not a knock. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, um, but I was a corporate attorney for five months, um, and uh, 
it was a fine firm and they were very good to me. Um, but I, I said at the time that uh, this place is like a temple to the squandering of human potential <laughs> because it had like a lot of really bright people, but we were handling uh, the minutiae of uh, corporate transaction documents. And I was like, this cannot be the highest use of this group of people because, you know, there's some very, very talented people on these walls. Uh, and then I made the decision to go you know, start a business, which flopped. And then like I had some real, real struggles in my 20s um, because... I was making less money than everyone I knew. Like, you know, I'd have all these bad dates because like I, I would go out and like, I, you know, I'd be self-conscious about um, uh, money or like, you know, buying like, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, uh, like a certain type of meal or like taking someone to a certain sort of place. Uh, so I, I went through like a real journey that way um, that ended up making it so that my standards for myself materially were like just not that high. <laughs> and and I also got lucky I married a woman who's um like you know cool with her uh husband uh not maximizing my economic opportunities at every turn. Um but the 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 thing that you know I, I tried to do with Venture for America and the thing I'm still sort of pushing on it is really trying to unlock folks from um the the paths that uh, our market will kind of drive them towards. Uh, and and one thing I think excites so many people about you is that people can sense that you're driven by something bigger than maximizing your bank account. Yeah, I am. I'm driven by um, really trying to figure out who I am, and just to have more happy days than unhappy days. And I know that sounds so stupid and trite, and like some people can say, "Well, yeah, you're in a position to do that." And it's like, no, I learned that. I was chasing other people's definitions of success for so long, and that's what was making me so unhappy. And so that's why things were never enough, because it was somebody else's definition of what should have made me happy. And so when I got it, I wasn't happy. Yeah, I mean, I was happy for a second or whatever, you know, get a job, get a promotion, buy a car, buy a better car, buy a house. And now my life is um, really, really simple. Like, I mean, I look forward to like, you know, and, and, and as a result, I've, my ego's gotten a lot less. And so like, you know, a simple example, um, I do Pilates. <laughs> Dude, that's <laughs> awesome. I do Pilates twice. Now, why? You know, when my 20s and 30s, I was, oh, I got to go work out. I'm working out. And I was in constant fucking pain. And then I realized it just doesn't matter what I look like. It matters how I feel. And Pilates twice a week makes me go to sleep, Andrew, and wake up. And I don't know if you see this in your 40s, but it makes me wake up pain-free wow. and it makes me so happy. Like more than anything else in the world, when I wake up and my back isn't feeling like it's wretched and my knees and whatever, I'm really happy. I can start the day with less, um, with less, you know, kind of like mental stress, right? That's a really simple thing. Um, and so I've learned over time that I've built pretty basically and, you know, spending time with my kids and, all of these things are just not things that I knew how to think about because other people's definitions were caught up in a lot of superficiality. And that's where we all lose our way. Um, and so, you know, if I can work on projects that are inspiring, that's pretty cool. If I can make decisions, that's cool. I also just want to be able to say things, even if they're not cool to some folks, because that's another thing that I think really prevents people from being happy right now. I, I, I do think that there's just... Um, 
everybody's so pent up, they're ready to judge, they're ready to cancel folks, they're ready to just kind of like wipe them off as, and they're ready to be judgmental. And um, again, another key feature of pragmatism, I think is, you know that everybody's got something useful to do and to say, and you find a way of just forgiving, you know, the bursts that people may regret in their youth or otherwise. For example, you know, I had this thing uh, last week where uh, I've, I've been saying pretty vociferously, we are headed for a biological patriarch in America, a Patriot Act in America. We, there, it is inconceivable that if you're working at a company or if you're part of a union, or if you're gonna get on a plane, that you're not gonna wanna have some assurance about the people around you having been vaccinated. Like that ship, in my opinion, is fucking sailed. And so like all the anti-vaxxers will have to have a market clearing price to pay for a choice of not vaccinating themselves. Because now that we have these kinds of communicable diseases, this is the beginning, not the end of airborne diseases like coronavirus. COVID-19 will, will be followed by COVID-20 and COVID-21 and COVID-22 and COVID-35. And these will be pernicious diseases. And so there will be a mandate to vaccinate. And I know that that pisses off a lot of people, but so be it. And I put this out on Twitter and I said, maybe folks that get vaccinated should wear a pin or a mask. And people equated it to the Holocaust. And I was like, holy shit, that is super judgmental and really, really like, wow, that is, that is an intense reaction. Um, so there's no way to have a debate. You know, you can't have a conversation about these things. And what I tried to tell people is like, well, if you don't want a mask, guess what? The government's going to mandate an app. And are you going to be happier or sadder when now all of a sudden there's a central repository that China and Russia are trying to hack that has all of our vaccination histories online? I've got a quick question on this point. If I get vaccinated uh, and you're not vaccinated, like that's your problem, not mine, right? Like as long as I'm vaccinated, <laughs> at least I'm going to get kind of because like because my plan is to get vaccinated, you know, very publicly. Um, and, and then at that point, um, if someone uh, around me does not get vaccinated, like they're in trouble, but I'm not in trouble is, is my understanding. I don't know if that's right. I'm just asking a question hypothetically uh, because um, like, I feel like the folks who are, who are going to suffer from non-compliance are the people who don't get vaccinated. I think it's TBD. Um, and the reason I say TBD is I think that we need to see, you know, typical vaccines, the, 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 you know, phase three testing protocols take years. You know, we've accelerated things and we've, we've truncated the entire process phase one to phase three in nine months. And so, you know, we have early efficacy data. We have early transmission data. We have early. That's true. Uh, if it's 95% and then everyone around you is like non-vaccinated and contagious, then it could like that 5% is a problem. That, that's true. What if the half-life of this thing is nine months or 18 months? What if you need to get vaccinated three or four times? What if only 35% of the population get vaccinated, even at 95% efficacy, you still have an R naught greater than one. And so you have a disease that's, that's causing a tremendous burden that could be shutting down businesses and economies. And um, oh, no, so, that's right. So my, my point, my point in all of this and bringing up this example is just back to the other thing, which is like, I think part of being happy is being able to say things and not being attacked and not being judged and not being canceled um, and being able to find a pragmatic way of talking about ideas. Um, one of the principles that I want to stand for um, is grace and uh forgiveness, not forgiveness even, because a lot of this shit's not even wrong. It's more like grace and understanding or grace and humanity. And one of the things I know as a, like a, now a public figure 
If you were to take a minute of my worst moments, I would seem like a raging asshole. <laughs> like, no doubt about it. And, and and so, you know, like we're holding um, everyone to a standard that like none of us could satisfy if you took us at our worst. Um, and there are times when someone just gets videotaped at their worst, like, you know, in public, like they, they're like, you know, a total dickhead to someone in public and then like their, their life gets ruined. Um, you know, and, and obviously like, you know, I prefer that maybe they hadn't done whatever the, the, the heck they did. But, um, but again, if someone had a camera on me in, in my worst 60 seconds, like, uh, I would seem like a terrible human. I, and I just think that's true of every single one of us. Um, and, and if you're going to have a discussion, uh, it's one of the reasons why, and I think people know this about me. It's like, I, I sit down and have conversations with people that, you know, like I disagree with on like various things, political or otherwise. Um, and I just think it's ridiculous that like somehow I'm supposed to be like mindful of the fact that someone might disagree with me on some level. It's like, <laughs> like, you know, it'd be surprising if they didn't disagree with me on some level because we're both different human beings. Anyway, I just wanted to uh, echo what, what you're suggesting. I think that we all are trying our best. And yes. I think it's when we forget that, that we just act like raging dipshits, but we are all honestly trying our best every day. Amen. And if you, if you keep it in mind, it's amazing um, you know, how much empathy you can have for other people. I don't think that that was a particular skill of mine. I had a real chip on my shoulder, which was like, I had a tough life. So, you know, F this, F that, F the other person, this person had a cushy life. This person was rich, this person, you know, and I just realized, no, we are, we're all trying our best. And, uh, you know, that's really helped me a lot. Um, it's, it's not to say that people give that back to me, <laughs> but <laughs> at least I can give it to other people. <laughs> well, well, I, I, I hope you receive more of it, uh, Chamath. And, you know, Pilates, so many people swear by it. Like, it seems like it makes your connective tissue, um, like, stronger and healthier in a way I feel like everyone would benefit from. Because we're about the same age. I'm 45. You're 44. Um, and there, there is like an adaptation that occurs like around this age where like the shit you did when you were a young man, like just does not work as well. <laughs> I can drink once or twice a week now. You know what I mean? Like if I, if I get even buzzed, I don't sleep well. I wake up the next day. I feel like complete shit. It's just not what it was like 20s and 30s. I could rage, wake up, go and do whatever, you know, uh, it's just not, it's just not what it is. And it's, so I have to reframe my expectations and find what really makes me happy. Yes, and find new ways to to be excited and fulfilled um, because they're like diminishing returns to some of the things that we did when we were younger. Um, and then you kind of find the new things with expanding returns. Certainly for me, kids are a big part of that, you know, like, and there are times when I'm playing with my kids um, where frankly, like work creeps in and I'm like, oh shit, I need to get back to this person. But then I'm just like, you know, if I can't enjoy this time with my kids, I'm sunk, you know? So then like you you have to say to yourself, like, this is, the purpose, you know, like, like, uh, you know, I'm, I don't, um, like, I, I shouldn't be like, you know, trying to abbreviate this time, I should be trying to uh, elongate it. The two best memories of the last month that I have were one, when we all decided me and my kids have four kids, that we wanted to watch Tenet. And we pre ordered it. And dude, we I always... haven't seen that yet. Well, yeah, so I, I, so it got released two days ago. So I know this because we would check it. Is it released yet? Is it released yet? And I mean, and so we've been building this thing up now. Tenet could be the worst fucking movie alive. It won't matter because we are all so pent up. My, myself, my partner, my kids. And then the second is we watched, and if you've never watched it, I would tell your audience to do it too. 
Um, we all on a Saturday binge watched Never Have I Ever, which is uh, a Netflix comedy that's been that's executive produced by Mindy Kaling from The Office. It is so fucking brilliant. And uh, these are the two moments of the pandemic that I remember the most over the last two months, jumping, screaming, laughing. Anyways, small things can make a big difference in people's lives. It allows you to find more empathy for others, I think. Okay, never have I ever done for me and my audience. The question is, like, have you seen Tenet and is it awesome? Uh, no, uh, we're watching it tomorrow night. I, this is the problem. My kids, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, like their only social interaction is through um, uh, Roblox or, you know, Fortnite because they can talk to their friends in a non-school setting. And so, you know, I give them the choice. I'm like, you can have, you know, 60 minutes of game time or a, a two hour movie. They're like, we'll take the game time. And then like, but then I'm like, but then you got to read and do the dishes and like plow the driveway. They're like, that's fine. <laughs> so we, ne <laughs> we negotiated Thursday. So I get to watch it tomorrow with them. So I can't wait. Well, well, I, I hope it's awesome. Um, uh, congratulations to you for the work you're doing to help build a future that's habitable. Uh, and healthy and everything else you're doing, uh, Chamad. There are not many people like you who are trying to solve human problems um, that are not being, uh, frankly, rewarded by the market at the same pace or level. Um, and so I, I was excited to sit down with you. I'm excited to see what you do next. I'm excited to see the future you help us uh, get through. Appreciate the heck out of your time. You're, you're a real inspiration, and I'll tell you why. Um, also, just growing up as an immigrant person, to see somebody who kind of takes the world stage the way you did just personally for me. Um, I'm sure you've heard that a lot from folks, but it's inspiring to see somebody just go for it. And uh, I just want to thank you because it gives my kid, my children are half South Asian, half Asian. And so, you know, there's a context where like, you know, my kids see, you know, an older version of themselves on a debate stage uh, it's really fucking amazing. So I just want to say thanks for inspiring a lot of people, including myself. I really appreciate it. And all the best to your kids. Uh, tell them I'll do better next time. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> thanks, Andrew. <laughs>